Hi, and welcome to Everyday Extraordinary, the show focusing on those people taking action to raise awareness and solve our global issues. Hi, my name's Andrew Wallace. I'm the CEO or Chief Troublemaker of an anti-slavery charity called Unsee that's headquartered in Bristol and other places, but covers the whole of the UK and also works internationally. It's great to be here. I hope that we can educate you some more about the realities of modern slavery, tell you a few stories, and also encourage you how you can play your part in tackling this heinous crime. That's great. Uh, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Um, firstly, I'd like to know your story, where it all started, what you were doing before before the big change, before Unseen and how that came to be. So I, I have a varied background. What I mean by that is I've worked in pretty much most sectors that, that are out there. So public sector, private sector, uh, I've done some work within academia not as an academic, but uh, working for a university. Uh, but prior to founding Unseen, I was actually working for a church. And that was actually how I came across the issue of trafficking in the first place. So a colleague of mine had been in the Ukraine uh, and came back and told me this story of how uh, he had stopped someone being trafficked and ended up buying them off the trafficker. Wow. Um, because she was responding to an ad which offered her a job um, and this is back in 2007, uh, six, seven, uh, offering her a job in uh, New York in Central Park selling ice cream, and it would pay her $80,000. This had been advertised in the main press within uh, Ukraine at the time. So it all seemed very legit, um, but it was uh, a setup. And if she had followed that ad, she would have most likely end up, ended up in a situation of uh, sex trafficking. Uh, so being exploited. Uh, in the US having traveled all the way from the Ukraine. So that, that story sort of piqued my interest um, in the subject. Um, parallel to that, I had a, another friend um, who had spent, coincidentally, her summers in the Ukraine working on the social orphan problem and came back, this is about three or four months later from this initial story saying, just got back from the Ukraine, discovered that actually what happens to these kids that we've been working with for you know, years, when they reach 16 and they're turfed out the orphanages, um, the traffickers turn up and a lot of them get into the, the back of a car of a trafficker, they're whisked off and they, and they disappear. Um, and, and we now know, you know, looking back historically in the in sort of the 90s and the early noughties, about nearly 400,000 people uh, disappeared into trafficking situations from the Ukraine alone. So the, these two individual stories were part of a much bigger picture that was going on. And once your interest is sparked in something, I grew up probably like a lot of people listening to this podcast thinking, oh, William Wilberforce, he ended the slave trade. That was 200 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, and thinking, oh, hang on, this sounds pretty much like slavery all over again. Um, it's different. Uh, it isn't chattel. There aren't physical sort of chains uh, restricting people's movements. But to all intents and purposes, people have become a commodity to be bought, sold and exploited. So I just started seeing very occasional reporting in the media. Uh, and because my interest was peaked, I was starting to read around the subject. And I came across this article that linked, that, that showed the link between Eastern Europe and the US in terms of, and back then, you know, our prevalent understanding of, of what we now call modern slavery was trafficking for sexual exploitation. Um, and there's this account of women being moved from Eastern Europe to the US 
via the regional airports in the UK in order to avoid greater scrutiny and, de and detection. And one of the airports named in this article just happened to be Bristol, where I lived. So I, in my mind, this is how the dots join together, whether they do logically and sequentially join together. But this is probably an insight to listeners the way my brain works. I went, OK, well, I know what I'll do. Let's write to every MP in the Bristol area, every council member um, and the chief constable, ask them what's going on in terms of human trafficking um, and ask some sort of more questions. Um, the reason I was able to do that was because we had worked as a church on social justice issues across the city for um, a long period of time. So, you know, I was known, knew who to contact, but that led to an, what is now an infamous uh, meeting, uh, certainly within Unseen's history, with a very senior police officer in um, Avon and Somerset Police, in which over the period of three or four hours, and, and I remember he walked into my office and said, this meeting's off the record, so I can tell you, you know, as it really is, but over three or four hours, he peeled off a layer of Bristol and off the United Kingdom in terms of what was going on in terms of trafficking at, at that time. And he was frustrated as a cop because they would kick in the doors uh, of illegal brothels uh, or residential brothels. They would, the only thing they could do was arrest the women uh, on immigration offences. It's funny how some things haven't changed or we've gone back full circle. Then they would stick them in a hotel and B&B overnight, trying to keep them safe. They would disappear. And he knew they would go straight back to the traffickers and the trail went cold. So he was frustrated on two counts. One, that uh, victims weren't being cared and supported. And two, that he couldn't get up the, the criminal ladder in order to arrest the bad guys. And that wasn't just true of Bristol. It was true right across the UK. And at the end of that, I stupidly asked the question, no, sorry, he asked me uh, an initial question or he made an initial comment which provoked the question. Um, and, and he said, look, anybody can write a letter that creates a stink and you've done that. And if that's what your intention was, retire happy. But he then said to me, but what are you actually going to do? And my mistake was to say, well, what do you actually need? <laughs> um, and he said, well, I, I need safe housing. I need to be able to put these victims somewhere safe where they can be uh, helped on their journey to uh, recovery. Um, and hopefully over time they will work with the police in that whole process. And I stupidly said, okay, I'll do that, knowing nothing of what that meant uh, on one condition that you become my first trustee. Because at this point, you know a lot more than I do. And the, the one thing I've learned through life is always surround yourself with people that know more than you do, because they make you look good. And so he agreed. And that was really sort of the genesis of, of Unseen. Uh, the, woman that had been working um, in the orphanages in the Ukraine was a teacher. She, uh, around that time, also came to me and said, look, I'm done with teaching. I'm really sort of concerned about this issue. And I said, do you fancy opening a safe house? I've no idea how we do it, what it means, but let's deal with, you know, what's immediately in front of us. And, and she agreed. So that was sort of, that was the nexus of, of unseen. Um, but we never wanted to be a charity about doing safe houses because mm. that to us was just about okay, bad things happen to people and we'll create a safety net. Unseen right from the get-go was, let's meet the need that's immediately in front of us, safe houses, but let's work on how we turn the tap off. Sure. So that was a really long answer to a very short question. I no. promise not all answers will be that long. <laughs> no, it, it's fine. Um, as you say, it's it's quite an insight. And it's, 
it's a difficult thing to unpick. I, I can certainly relate when you were saying, you know, the dots may not make sense to some people, but it's all these things that spark your interest and you think, I can't just sit around. I've seen it. I can't unsee it. I have to do something. And I think our brains are wired to find the things that are close to home, that are close to our hearts and close to our minds and say, look, it's getting closer. It happens essentially under our nose. And for you, it sounds like a lot of things converged. And then to find out that Bristol Airport was one of the ones that was being used for that was almost a catalyst in, in yeah. saying, well, here's something that I might be able to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, I, I, I think also, you know, reflecting back, I have always been passionate about issues of justice and social justice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, but it, it was one of those things that came from left field. And, and the way I often describe it is it came from left field. At the same time, NASA retired the space shuttle and somebody bought the booster rockets and strapped them on my back, but they never gave me an off switch. And it, it felt like, you know, take off since then. Do you think the um, naivety around what you were embarking on helped you actually do it? That's a great question. And uh, yes, I was certainly I, I was certainly naive. Did it help? Um, probably, but I'm sort of the, the type of person that won't take no for an answer. So you know, when when I first started, I actually what I did was was reach out to a whole load of. Um, existing NGOs saying, Look, I'm really concerned about this issue, what can I do to help? Um, and was just stonewalled, basically, um, and, and told to sort of get lost, which I found incredibly frustrating. And so I think it was partly a reaction to that, but actually it, it was the reaction to, I was talking with a very senior police officer who had skin in the game. And so Unseen wasn't started out of grumpiness, it was it was started because uh, there was a request for us to start it. Yeah. But, you know, reflecting back, and I think it's always, a, you know, it's a really important to reflect back. I think that stance doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, it was a very different world in 2007. But this was a backwater issue, wasn't on the political radar. Um, there were very uh, small number of NGOs engaged in it. Um, and, and it was a sort of cabal. But I think, you know, where we are now is just, it's a totally different space. Mm. But naivety is a good thing, you know, but also I think that belief that, and, and this is sort of, you know, a, a personal philosophy is I think you should always attempt things which always have the potential to leave you falling flat on your face, because then I, otherwise I don't think you're reaching. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, you just stay within your comfort zone then. There's, yeah. a, there's a quote that says, do one thing every day that scares you. And that's sort of, that's how you grow uh, as, a, as a person. I prefer it hourly, but there we go. <laughs> you do move quite fast then. Yeah. <laughs> so with the, the police officer that, that you had this meeting with, did it feel like there was a veneer over the issue that people didn't want to peel back? He was he was incredibly passionate about the issue, um, and I think what we see today is, you know, especially within law enforcement, you you have these pockets of people that have encountered it for real, and it significantly changes them and alters their perspective around that. Within a sort of broader sort of 
you know, at best tacit understanding of what's going on, but not really engaged about it. Now, whether that's partly a combination of this is such a horrible subject, therefore, you know, we, we don't want to think about it or just ambivalence or, or you know, a number of other things. And we can maybe unpack that later. So I think that that was part of it. The advantage of having somebody that had skin in the game was he was very quickly uh, able to get me into what was then the Serious Organised Crime Agency and the Home Office and connect me with the people that I needed to be connected with. It was a very small number. And, you know, having formally done management consultancy and systems work around that, what struck me was just how little strategy there was and little willingness to collaborate and work together. Um, and I, I always tell this story. There was an, an infamous meeting at soccer headquarters between the Home Office and NGOs and policing and, and others, which descended into a shouting match. And, and I just left that meeting on the one hand, completely disheartened that that, that was going on, but on the other, determined to say, actually, we need to bring some strategic leadership and direction to this. Otherwise, we're never going to tackle this effectively. Yeah. Yeah, it's all very well going in with an idea of what you're going to do, but you do need a strategy to actually implement it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. What was your biggest challenge in the early days? Money. Um, yeah, and I don't mean that just because I'm a charity, and I'm not saying that just because I'm a charity. I, I mean, we literally got down to the wire in terms of the, the, the first safe house in that nobody seemed to sort of like the idea or want to support the idea you know we had, we had little bits of, of money but we needed significant funding and I think we were sort of saying to ourselves oh well this was a good idea <laughs> but um you know this this horse ain't running and then comic relief believed in us and, and gave us a significant grant and that if you like was sort of that was the the kickstarter uh that we needed to get going in that whole process and then everything sort of snowballed from there and then I think the other one was just, and I've already referenced it, the, the, the complete dysfunctionality within the sector at that time. You know, um, I used to describe it as it was a very small space full of very angry pit vipers. So it wasn't really a space that I wanted to be in um, and it didn't feel like a space that was gonna be terribly productive. Yeah, that's, that's quite a vivid image. What is the biggest change that you've seen since you started Unseen? Well, I, the biggest. Um, I'm sure there are a number I, of them. But... Yes. I think I'll just I'll rattle off a few because I think they all, they all inter, in, interlink and interrelate to one, one another. This is something that has come up the political priority list rather rapidly. And I was usually privileged to pay a, a part in that process. I think media engagement and understanding has grown. The business community now understand it. There is greater awareness. It's not where it's, it's still not where it needs to be with, within the general public, but there is certainly more awareness. I remember very early on, we did a sort of vox pop uh, on the streets of Bristol under, asking people if they knew what human trafficking was. And um, I think nearly caused um, a major incident for our local mayor because somebody thought um, the centre of Bristol was going to be pedestrianised and was about to stomp off to City Hall and whatever. But that just, you know, it's slightly, slightly comic, but it tells you just people didn't understand, you know, what, what human trafficking was. I think there was a bit more understanding there. 
So I think we've we've seen all of that. And, you know, just this weekend with the G7 summit, we've seen a, a statement coming out around, you know, the commitment to tackling forced labor, but that just wasn't there back in 2007. So I think that you can say the needle in terms of political, uh, business, media, and society uh, awareness has moved. There's a slightly different response if you say, are, are we winning? Are we actually going forward? Um, which I think is, I think at best we're standing still. Um, and probably in reality, we're starting to go backwards around that. So I think, yeah, it's, it's those things. Yeah. When I was working in at risk and compliance, we introduced a whistleblower program. And initially, a lot of people both in the company and senior management were very disheartened by the fact that the numbers went up, more people were reporting things, more people were raising concerns, not necessarily whistleblowing in the huge dramatic sense, but more things were being reported. Are you seeing that same kind of increase? You've got the helpline, mm-hmm. um, you've got a lot of awareness that you do online, in the media, and so on and so forth. Do you think that there's that same kind of increase in reporting that you'll see before you can actually tackle the problem and bring the numbers down properly? The short answer is yes, we, we are seeing more, more reporting. So I think that, that speaks to greater awareness. I mean, the, the issue I think that we face is it's multifaceted, um, but there is still a large part where and especially in the UK, you know, uh, and the police often talk about this, that the public are the eyes and ears. Um, yeah. and, and they you know, they require eyes and ears. So it is important that people are aware, you know, you, you know, reference sort of uh, whistleblowing lines and within businesses, you know, increasingly, you know, when we work with businesses, it isn't just about addressing the policies and the practices and the, the procedures. It's also saying, actually, you know, you have X hundreds, thousands of people that if they're aware, they can also speak up, you know, if they see something within the operations of the business, uh, but also they are members of the general public as well. So we see this sort of twin track a, a, approach there. The other thing is, and I, you know, we've said this for over you know, 15 years now, which is it, if you look for it, you find it. Yeah. And I, I think there is, once, once you know what you're looking for, it's, it's very easy to spot it and see it. And then I think the third thing is actually a lot of what we call modern slavery is baked into the way our economy and our societies currently work. And what I mean by that is that you've got, um, you have to sort of understand what modern slavery is. Yes, it's a crime, et cetera, and all of those things, but fundamentally it's an economic crime. And it's where you're turning a human being into a commodity to be bought, sold and exploited for profits. And so the mind of your adversary is, is a illicit trader. They're smart, they're nimble, they're agile. So I think we need a sort of a, a mental shift in terms of, of how we're tackling it. The other side, if you say, like in terms of sort of the demand that creates the environment for modern slavery to thrive, is I think in the developed world, our, our addiction to cheap goods, services, and labor, and then globally, um, you know, on the supply side, but, you know, increasingly in the UK, we're seeing UK nationals rising to the top in terms of victims that are uh, affected by this. 
but just the growing numbers of vulnerable people, whether that is to economic pressures, political pressures, wars, famine, increasingly climate change, um, as well as the West broadcasting, hey, we have a wonderful life, but then wanting to put a wall up and not allow anyone to sort of benefit from that. And, and, the, and you know, the, the problems that that massive disparity between um, the, develop, the developing world, which is getting wider, you know all the problems that that creates and, and that is that's a massive pull factor um as well so yeah complicated i think is the short answer <laughs> it's always complicated i think there are a lot of people as well that wouldn't be willing to tackle such a complicated problem because you're not just saying these are victims of modern slavery, human trafficking, sexual exploitation, we deal with those. As you say, you're looking at turning the tap off for this happening in the first place, which means you need to address the, the traffickers themselves, the, for example, the factories, because it's not always sexual exploitation that they're trafficked for. Um, I mean, forced labor, um, oh my gosh, the, you can recite the list far better than I can, yeah. but there are, there are so many, areas of industry that it impacts on. For example, if you buy a t-shirt for two pounds, how much are the workers getting paid, if at all? And then if you have those kind of conditions in a third world country and they see an advert perhaps for come to the UK, this is what can happen here. You know, it's going to be an attractive prospect or if it's a war-torn country and they think, you know, I can do better, I can better provide for my family in another country. They're not always going to be genuine adverts. They're not always going to be genuine altruistic people. As you say, it's it's commodities traders and it's horrific. Yeah, yeah. and gosh, there's so much in, in that to, uh, to unpack. How long have we got? Four hours, did you say? Um, <laughs> the, I mean, I think the first thing is, you're right, it isn't just trafficking for sexual exploitation. In fact, the vast majority of people are held in situations of forced labor. And then you've got sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, forced criminality, organ trafficking, um, you know, other, and, and um, you know, some would argue forced marriage as well should be under that umbrella term of modern slavery. But the vast majority are in situations of labor exploitation. Then, you know, you, you raise the issue of the, the two pound cotton t-shirt. Well let's just unpack the life of that cotton t-shirt you know when you're picking it up off the, the shelf or the market store or, or whatever you know it's been picked in a field it's then spun it then goes to the dyers it then goes to the factory it's then cut it's then transported it goes to distribution and logistics and into a store with all the overheads and everything else no you can't buy a t-shirt for two pounds and everybody getting a, a fair cut in that that whole process and I remember seeing actually um, an infographic that the, uh, an NGO put together in terms of you know the, the cost of a shirt and, and how that's that's apportioned out, um, and and just how skewed even if it's if it's not you know in the threshold of labour exploitation it's skewed against the people further down the supply chain, um, and that's that's a problem of the the current system of business that we have which is one of extractive profit. So I want to extract as much profit from this supply chain as, as I can, that creates the perfect environment for exploitation and corners to be cut. There was some work that um, an economist did just saying on the print and with one of the global apparel brands and just said, well, 
what if you applied the principle, you know, the ILO principles of decent work and a contextualized living wage all the way down the supply chain? What happens to the cost of goods and services? Because, you know, to people listening to this, I can imagine them going, I, I can't afford to pay that, you know, the proper amount. That's a worrying statement in itself. But actually, you know, if you took a pair of jeans, you're talking about 20 cents, 25 cents more on the price of a pair of jeans in order to ensure, ensure decent work, contextualized living wage. What I'm more interested at is at the factory level, say in Bangladesh. If you, if you do that, what it means in an instance is that the, the woman, and it usually is women, can afford to support her family mm -hmm. because she's getting paid a contextualized living wage, which means children don't have to work, which means kids can go to school for much, much longer, which means the economic uplift in that country is much, much quicker, which means that the vulnerability decreases therefore it's much more difficult for exploiters to move in so you know you're almost creating this win-win-win all the way around and the consumer at this end you know can afford 25 cents on a pair of jeans but it isn't just the it is and it isn't the come and have a job over here in order that you can support your family back there as well and i think you know we've seen through the covid pandemic and, and the scandal in leicester around that the garment trade there it's also very much here in the uk as well yeah and so this, um, and we certainly see this on the, the helpline, um, you know, calls, which may not hit the threshold for modern slavery. And, you know, if you, it's, it's a sort of sliding scale of exploitation, you know, not paying national minimum wage or holidays or, or whatever, all the way up to where you actually have complete control over that individual. And they're not free to leave that situation without fear of violence or retribution. We are seeing more and more calls where we're going but there is labor exploitation taking place here. That only happens because of the systems that we currently have in place, because of the impunity of some businesses to say, we're just gonna suck as much profit out of this um, and sell goods at this price, which means it is not possible for decent, the principles of decent work to happen. I started my working life working for uh, Marks and Spencer, so I was a graduate trainee with, with M&S, so I understand sort of the retail trade. We, collectively for the last 40 years we have fed this addiction to cheap goods services and labor and we've missed off the value bit yeah. and so people are no longer value why have we got throwaway fashion or disposable fashion or um food mountains it's because we don't value the things that we purchase as much as we, as we used to and so that just again washes into the whole equation that just creates these environments for, for exploitation or we have practices where I need 60,000 in a blue colorway by yesterday. And the factory can only produce 30,000. And yet it, you know, it knows it has to say yes, therefore it has to subcontract out. And the, the more you subcontract out, the more it is likely that exploitative and or dangerous and or substandard working environments will, will occur. And yet, you know, people, people are desperate enough to work in those situations. And, and back to your thing of, you know, people come over here let's go back to the car wash you know i've met people in the car wash who've been paid 20p a day you know after all deductions accommodation everything else and they go yes but i'm in a better situation than i've come from and so again it you know it highlights just the complexities of issues there yeah around that so again sorry another long answer to it <laughs> no it's it's not a bad thing believe me it's not a bad thing since i first saw you talk um you came up on LinkedIn and I thought this is somebody that I need to follow because what you were doing just felt so important and 
there were there are always sort of so many questions that popped up because it's it is a complex subject it's a complex area there's a lot to unpack you know i think i think a lot of the time in situations like these people want a yes no answer and you just can't give it because it depends you know why are they here what's their situation is it that they're being persecuted in their home country or in their country of origin and getting paid 20p a day here with or without board is genuinely a better situation you know how do you compete with that if you're for example trying to trying to shut down the the commodity traders if they don't want to go it's it's such a thorny topic it's so complex it, it, it is and i think the danger you're right people want yes no answers or people want quick fix solutions and and there just aren't any um because it is it's both the fact that it modern slavery exists today is it's reflective of the society that we are you know we have created the environment in which has allowed this level of exploitation to come roaring back did wilberforce end the slave trade well, yes, technically the transatlantic slave trade, but I don't think exploitation was ended. So to address that it, it is going to be complicated and life is significantly more complicated and interrelated than it was 200 years ago. The way I often describe it is it's a bit like one of those really awful um, jumpers you got from your granny at Christmas. You know, you tug at a piece of yarn and the whole thing begins to unravel and you just realise, gosh, there's so much more complexity to this. Yeah you know to tackle it and I was talking to someone um, the other day about this because they said well how are we going to do this and I said well th the problem is it th there isn't really anything other than saying we have to have a 40-year strategy you know it's taken us globalization's last 40 years it's taken us 40 years to get you know especially when we're talking about forced labor to get into the mess that we're now in let's be realistic and say it's going to take us 40 years to get out of it you know, we'll just have to awkwardly forget SDG 8.7 because we're going to do that by 2030. So let's just, you know, move on um, from, from that. And then it's to say to the politicians, this is a non-partisan issue, but we need that long-term strategy that everybody is pulling towards. That in and of itself is, is hugely problematic because you, you have politicians' attention span for about two and a half years, then they're worried about getting re-elected. Yeah. You also, because, like you said, this issue is so complicated. It, I think now what we're starting to see is that the government want to kick this as much as they can into the long grass because it's just in the too complicated box. And then, you know, when you start talking about, you know, structural changes to society, people, you know, sort of roll their eyes at me going like, well, you're not going to achieve that, to which my response is, you know, keep telling me no, because that just makes me more determined. Um, <laughs> But actually, you know, it, it has to be that whole societal response. So it has to be governmental, it has to be media, it has to be business, it has to be faith sector, it has to be general public, it has to be NGOs. And, and it's bringing that together to say, what are we about and what are we trying to achieve? What do, Describe what that looks like. Well, for us, it's very simple. Our mission statement is a world without slavery. Okay, so we've described it. But what does that actually mean? And then work it back and yeah. then go, so this is where we are. That's where we want to get to. And this is how we think we're going to get there. And yes, some of it may be really high level and fleeting at this point, just because it you can't get into the detail of it. But that is the only way that, that we'll tackle this. Um, and it's having that ambition 
to do that that you know is that's what's missing within the sector as a whole you know it's either you're met with that's never going to be achievable or people have always been exploited or or, or to which my response is well so what you know i'd rather try and significantly move the needle than not try because it's in the too difficult category yeah absolutely um again when i was doing risk and compliance a lot of the time the response that i was met with when i suggested that we change something was well we've always done it that way and i said well that's fine but it doesn't mean it's still right yeah or 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 i think what's even worse is the sort of the classic british response was so we're going to do this and then you're met with 101 reasons why we shouldn't do it um and you know and, and I think we just need to have a bit more can-do attitude. Um, or if you say, or, or like, you know, like you referred earlier, you know, let's have a bit more naivety. Yeah, there's, I think there's a balance to be struck there. If you're going to launch into something like you did, I think naivety helps because otherwise the magnitude of what you're taking on might kind of warn you off. Um, in terms of the general public, I am very much for as much information as possible because then you can make an informed decision. So back to the t-shirts again, as an example, I'm very much against fast, cheap fashion. Um, I'm quite, quite selective. I'd like to be very selective, but even I make mistakes. I'm quite selective in um, the brands that I choose. Um, and around the same time that you were setting up Unseen, um, I discovered Patagonia and I have t-shirts from then that I bought 2007, 2008, that I still have and still wear, and they are still properly intact. I have t-shirts that I bought, you know, if you go on holiday and you've forgotten something, you think, oh, I'll just pop out to the shop and get something. Um, and they didn't even last a year, let alone 10 years, 15 years. And I think when you look at things like that, okay, it may cost 25 pounds instead of two pounds but the quality of what you're getting as you said is phenomenally different they take the time this isn't supposed to be an advert for patagonia but you know they take the time to actually make these things to last as opposed to we need 600 of them yesterday yeah and god it speaks to so many issues there you know this issue of modern slavery, forced labor exploitation is also linked to environmental degradation um, you know, and, the, and the climate crisis, crisis that we're facing. So I remember, you know, when I started in retail in the previous century, but I can say that now, um, th this notion of disposable fashion didn't exist. You know, back then, if you, if you bought a t-shirt or two for the summer, actually you, you did wear it much longer in that whole process you know whereas now i see people like you said oh, i just need some t-shirts for the holiday wear it for the holiday and then whether or not they're still good you know you chuck them um, and it's that throwaway culture you know which i think the world is waking up to what it's not woken up to yet are the, are the circumstances that allow that throwaway t-shirt to be manufactured in the first place so the linking of these two issues is starting to happen mm -hmm. um and we just need the awareness of that you know there was a great campaign right like who made my clothes the, the who made my clothes campaign that, that's run for a while now it is a great campaign because actually it connects 
people with the product. Um, you know, we live sort of such a hermetically sealed life. Often, you know, you go to the supermarket, there's your hermetically sealed food and you don't understand, you know, the provenance in which it was, you know, either harvested or made, you know, in order that you could have it. It's just there wrapped in cling film. Um, you know, same, same with clothes. I went, actually, funnily enough, I went with M&S um, a few years back to India and spoke at their international suppliers conference. This is to all their suppliers talking about the issues of, of forced labor exploitation and modern slavery. And went to, to some of the supplier factories. Um, and these were the good ones. Mm -hmm. um, but what you walk away with is a, a realization of the circumstances in which those goods have been made. Uh, you know, it's hard, hot work. And so actually you, you start to value again the garments that you're buying yeah and remember you know i was just seeing if you like the finishing bit you know i hadn't seen the dye houses and the spinning um factories let alone the cotton pickers um you know and it's you know, currently you know to the fore the whole thing of xinjiang and the uyghurs in in um xinjiang in china you know and the, the forced labor um exploitation that's taking place in the cotton fields there and in Turkmenistan, and, and you know not just with uyghurs but with muslim minorities as well so we, we have to reconnect ourselves as a society and see our interconnectedness. And it's funny, we're selective in how we see it. You know, we live in this sort of this tech world now, you know, where you can, you know, you can Google Earth and Google view yourself around the world. And yet, um, sorry, that was my phone. I heard the word Google, it turned itself on. Go away. You can ask me to. <laughs> There you go. That the perfect example of you know the, how technology works in that, and yet it, it's invasive. But but if we you know if if we don't stop being selective and, and understanding how all these things sit together, then then we're never going to tackle them. And that's you know if you're sitting there listening to this and, you, and you're in business and you you know, you should be speaking up and asking your business what you're doing. You know, there's legislative requirements on businesses now to, to be addressing those things. If you're a member of the public and you're shopping, you know, ask that, ask those questions, you know, politely, not aggressively, um, but just asking and encouraging um, businesses to do more. And, and, you know, I'm so glad you chose Patagonia. They're one of my favorites as well, just for how they've tackled things, you know, and actually, you know, that there's a values-based business that yeah. is living out its values. And for me, what was most telling is they, they actually had an incident of forced labor exploitation in their supply chain in, in Taiwan. And they were completely open and transparent about it. And then they blogged about how they were dealing with the problem. And they just discovered how complicated the issue was, you know, and how many layers that, that had to be dealt with. But that's the way I think businesses should be they will always have my support and any business that is, is willing to say, we found this. Because while that speaks to me is, is a proactivity of that business to actually go out and look for it. Yeah. Um, and we've argued with the government that actually, you know, if they're going to upgrade its modern slavery statement, one of the, th the mandatory things you should have in there is the number of incidents of, of modern slavery that that business has found in its supply chains. Yeah. And if zero to explain why zero. Yeah, and and it's similar to um, something like the UK Bribery Act. There's a requirement to report on how many instances of bribery, or how many cases have come through the compliance teams. What happened? Was it? Was it not? You know, a, a very sort of 
a bird's eye overview of of what happened with that. Um, and I re I remember when the Modern Slavery Act came out, I was so excited for it. I really was because part of my remit at the time was supply chain and procurement and working in risk and compliance specifically at that time around um, anti-bribery and corruption and I could just see how vast the network was how interconnected everything was and so when it came out saying okay we're going to address modern slavery this is what we're going to do and then it felt like such an anti-climax because there was no push to investigate the supply chain we already did that for the corporate compliance program in relation to the UK Bribery Act. So in my mind, it was very simple that we would do the same to check for modern slavery. We had a fairly comprehensive list of what constituted modern slavery at the time. So going through and investigating, we were already going out to the factories, to the countries, we had in-country agents and things like that. And the, uh, the response was, no, it doesn't say we have to do that. I thought, how can you turn a blind eye to that? Well, let, let me give you some of the background to the, the Modern Slavery Act and, and some of the problems, because I think a lot of people have been critical of it. But I think context is, is really important. So actually, when the Modern Slavery Bill was the last bill of the, the coalition government, but the coalition government was in the midst of a red tape challenge, i.e. it was cutting business regs left, right and centre. So... Um, just to go back a little bit further, between 2011 and 13, I chaired a report for the Centre for Social Justice on the, the scale and the problem of modern slavery in the UK, what was then called human trafficking. We coined the phrase modern slavery to try and gain greater public understanding and media awareness of the issue. But one of the key things we called for was transparency in supply chain legislation. And then based on that report, eight weeks after it came out, I was in the cabinet office where the cabinet agreed it was going to do a modern slavery act. We then as unseen led the charge on calling for transparency in supply chains, you know, building on what California had done with SB 657 uh, there. And at the time we were told there is no chance of getting this whatsoever. It's a red tape challenge, just there was no interest in that whole process. So we built a really effective coalition of investors and businesses and NGOs and faith community and general public calling on that. And then there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of it led by business saying to Downing Street and the government, we want this legislation because it will level the playing field. You know, we want to do the right things, but we recognize that some businesses aren't doing the right things. At the same time, um, there were lots of like, people calling for Let's do something akin to the bribery act that you've just described. That was just, if we had gone down that route, we would have lost the argument with business, with not with business, with government. It just wasn't going to happen. At the same time, we also wanted to create some legislation that was different, i.e. it was describe the steps that you were taking and present business with a blank sheet of paper, which having worked in business, I knew would flummox business because they'd be going, well, where are the boxes that I have to tick that so I show I've complied. And we wanted to, you know, we wanted to stimulate a little bit of sort of smarts and, and thinking around this. Key to all of this was that government would actually implement its own legislation. So if you actually look at the act, it says, um, you look, businesses can commit these offences in modern slavery. It says that right at the top. Then you get to section 54, it says that again. And then it says, we want you to describe every year what you're doing to tackle modern slavery. 
there is an iterative nature to it and you have to report every year. Um, but it's a blank sheet of paper so you can decide what to do. And you can say we're doing nothing and do that because we knew that that would be a sort of PR disaster for businesses. Right at the bottom, it says, if a business doesn't produce these statements, the Home Secretary can take that business to court and force it to produce it. And if it still doesn't, then actually the fines are unlimited that the courts can hand down on that business. To date, since 2015, not one business has been taken to court. And we have, you know, circa 3,800 3, businesses still haven't produced the first statement. So I understand the frustrations. My gentle pushback at times is, yes, but actually, if the government had bothered to implement its own legislation, I, we would be in a very different space to where we are now. The government are now saying, we're going to upgrade the legislation. And, you know, it is going to become not full bribery act, but quasi with fines and penalties. And I go, great, that's an, another piece of legislation, but are you actually going to implement it? Yeah. And, and that, that is the Achilles heel of the Modern Slavery Act. You know, you've got a lot of posturing by politicians going, well, we're world leading. Well, you're not. But the very fact that you haven't implemented Section 54, as the law allows you to do, tells me something about government, tells me about what really matters and doesn't matter. Now, to be fair to government, it's produced its own statement. It now has a social value metric in, in, in terms of its purchasing, saying, you know, th these are the criteria by which purchasing should take place. And I go, that's great. But the first time it gets significantly tested in the COVID pandemic, you know, when PPE uh, was required, and we were knowingly purchasing from businesses that were knowingly, were already flagged as using forced labor exploitation, tells me that it's not a value. You know, values are only values if you live them out yeah. and you can evidence them. So while I will be fully supportive of, you know, upgrading transparency and supply chains legislation in the, in the UK and seeing it go around the globe, we need governments to implement its own legislation in order to affect change. When we argued for transparency in supply chain, we said we need what we call as a spiky carrot. You need incentives um, as well as a spike to catch people out that aren't, you know, behaving. And my fear is actually what we will end up with this, this upgrade is just tick boxes. Yeah. And we won't have any innovation and companies will go, oh yeah, we've done all the tick boxes and then stop. And this issue is far more complicated than that. And yeah. we, businesses have a crucial role to play. They, you know, they have the economic heft uh, and the insight in order to make fundamental changes and there's a, this is a key opportunity, you know, the, the whole B Corps movement, the whole issues around businesses being a force for social good, you know, the whole philosophy, say, around a Patagonia yeah. is being picked up, you know, not just the Unilevers, but other businesses that want to do the right thing. And yet we will have a legislation that is counter to that. And when legislation is, if you like, racing to the lowest common denominator, you know, I, I just wince. And... I'm still firmly of the belief that all it, all it needed was in year two for the Home Secretary to use the legislation and take a, one of those known brand FTSE 100s that hadn't complied to court and you would have seen a step change. Yeah. And I know talking to people that have been in your roles, you know, across businesses around the, the, the globe, that would have been the step change because every board would have said, we are not ending up in that situation. Yeah, and it's what the Serious Fraud Office did. You know, they cherry-picked, in the broadest sense, the companies and the organisations that would have the most impact 
I suppose in medieval times, it would have been, here's the worst criminal, let's string them up and set an example to all the others. But it, it, it works. Yeah, and I think there's also, there's a psychological element to it as well, which is, and I say this as a parent, that you don't affect the most effective change by just, you know, haranguing and correcting. It, it's encouragement that, you know, that people need in order to grow and flourish. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you encourage business to do the right thing? You you need you need the guide rails of legislation, and if you step over the guide rails, there isn't an electrocution that takes place. But you know it's a big enough field. You've created a big enough field for people to play in and and innovate in. And you know we were what we were trying to do, and it, you know it's partly driven because I'd worked in business, and talking to businesses was to create an environment for innovation in in tackling these issues. Now yes. There are loads of companies that Unseen now works with who are innovating and doing some really, really smart stuff um, and are really committed to doing this. But they are they're at the forefront and there's a very large sort of laggard pack. You need legislation, you need the, the spiky carrot to move them along. But they, they've got to be incentivized, but they've got to know there's a consequence to, to not tackling these issues. And what role do you think consumers play in this? The, the reason I ask is that we're seeing a lot more consumer activism not necessarily as far as boycotting brands but they are asking those questions why is this t-shirt two pounds why is this car wash only five pounds i think a lot more people are asking questions do you think that would be sufficient in helping turn the tide it's not sufficient it's part of the solution take it away and then you haven't got a solution um, around that so i think yes the, the um, the, the more consumers can be informed, that's the first thing, so, so aware, then the, the activism bit is, again, back to this encouragement thing. So, I mean, again, speaking as a, as a former retailer, if you go into a store and politely ask to see a manager and ask him to explain what that business is doing to tackle modern slavery and ensure forced labour isn't in its supply chains, I pretty much guarantee you that manager won't know. And so what you then say is, well, look, I will come back next week. Can you get onto your head office so that when I come back, you can give me an answer in that whole process? Now, if enough people do that and that you know, feeds up the, the, the funnel to head office, it, it will sort of start to sort of have an impact. Or you can write to the, the CEO or the chair. You can, you can be an activist shareholder, buy shares and go to AGMs. You can say to your pension fund manager i don't want to invest in companies that aren't committed to tackling modern slavery you can boycott um, but if you just boycott and say nothing about it to that business it's not as impactful as writing and saying um, i really love your products but i'm not going to buy your products in, until you do more to tackle modern slavery and evidence what you're doing yeah um you know even if it is you you haven't got a modern slavery statement to it but actually can you tell me the actual steps that you've taken and, and this is you know back to the the mother slavery statements you, you you could have said in year one we have a policy we, a, we think slavery is a bad idea we have policies and procedures and everything else in year two we still think slavery is a bad idea and we still have policies procedures and stuff. well actually technically if you look at the, at the legislation you haven't taken any steps in that last calendar year so you should be saying um, we think slavery is a really bad idea but we haven't taken any steps um, so I think we you know we need that that transparent honesty and, and scrutiny of, of actually what the statements are saying so, you know, if you're going to boycott, you're saying why you're boycotting and what will bring you back. When you're buying from businesses that you really do like what they're doing, so say a Patagonia, is write to them, encourage them to do more, encourage them to go further. 
um, write to your MP, write to your councillors, uh, tell your friends, you know, why, why this and not that, or are you aware of this, this and that, and, and, and so on. You know, the old maxim from retail is the consumer is king uh, or yeah. queen uh, or, or whatever. Use that power that you have. Because actually, if, um, and I always mangle his quote deliberately, but it's that Wilberforce quote, is that once you know, you can't look the other way. So once you've listened and heard that, you know, exploitation takes place within the apparel sector or the food sector or in the car wash or construction sites, you know, the, the multitude of, of exploitation that takes place, you can't then carry on just go, oh, well, fine, I'm still going to buy my two-pound T-shirt. Because in effect, what you're saying is, I actually don't give a rip about uh, somebody else's life being impacted by this and, and the circumstances in which these goods have been made. But that somebody else is somebody's son or daughter or uncle or aunt or mother or father. And increasingly within the UK, there is no reason why potentially it couldn't be your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, because that, that is the reality. You know, the, the reality of 40 plus million slaves globally, and that's a conservative number, or 100,000 plus slaves at any one time in the UK, and that's another conservative number, means that argument of six degrees of separation is probably only three or four degrees of separation. Yeah, that's really insightful. We've actually answered the ultimate question unintentionally. So <laughs> I think you've covered pretty much everything that people can do you know, in their day-to-day -day lives, because not everybody has to set up a charity to tackle this. It is, oh, no. it, in my mind, it's about all those little steps, all those little actions that add up to make the difference. As you say, don't just boycott brand, tell them why you're boycotting them. And, and be aware of what the indicators are. A lot of what we've talked around is forced labor exploitation, but you know, there's you know, forced criminality, sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, and organ trafficking. Be aware of the signs. And then do that very un-British thing is, is speak up because, you know, not only do you, you know, are you the eyes and ears, but you can also be a voice for people that in situations of exploitation. Um, I would encourage people quite naturally to download the Unseen app, but that covers all types of exploitation. And then you can report via the app into the, into the helpline if you see something. You can either do it, you know, putting it in the details and sending it, um, or, you know, you can automatically call the helpline. That's really, really important. I've lost count now of the instances of where a call by a member of the public has led to people getting out of situations of, of exploitation. So then, you know, you can have that warm, fuzzy feeling of I, I have contributed. You've actually made a difference just yeah. by making a call, just by reporting something. Yeah. And often it's nothing more than just a gut feeling that something's not right. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and you don't have to worry about whether you've got it wrong or right. There's trained people that can deal with that. Um, and, you know, and we're plugged into all the, um, the statutory authorities that you know, we, can, we can triage it and assess it and deal with it. But you know, your call, you know, sometimes we refer to the, the helpline as a lifeline. Your, your call could be that lifeline to somebody getting out of exploitation. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for Unseen or what's the focus for Unseen moving forward? I'm getting through the pandemic. I think you know, for the whole of the third sector, it has been quite a trauma. You know, it's been traumatic for the country. It's been particularly traumatic for the third sector. So I think getting through that, and then we have a five-year strategy starting the beginning of next year, 2022 through to 2027, um, where we want to be more intentional about translating, if you like, what we do on the front line, whether that's through working directly with victims or through the helpline or our work with statutory authorities and businesses 
translating that much more into policy and strategy to help governments um, around the world um, really tackle this. Um, and we also want to develop internationally more. Um, we already do work internationally, but become much more intentional in terms of taking what we've learned in the last few years and you know, really apply that around the, the globe. So just small things then. Something to keep me busy. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. I will... Um, Thanks, I will it's been a pleasure. <laughs> I will include a link to Unseen and the Unseen app so that people can visit, see what you do and get the app and make a difference. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thanks, Kit. Thanks for listening. Check out the links below to learn more. And if you like what you heard, hit that follow button. Until next time, take care of yourselves.